You're listening to a North Valley Church podcast. Thanks so much for joining. For more information and resources, you can visit us online at northvalley.org. All right, well, good morning. That's a message bumper that'll get you moving early. So, man, I'm, I'm moving a little slower this morning. Last night I didn't sleep good. We went over to a friend's house here in the church. They invited us over for dinner. And I did something I normally don't do. I went to the counter, and it was the end of the night, and I, they had Dr. Pepper there. And I've always struggled with insomnia, you know, so I have to, like, do these rigid routines, put the lavender oil on, turn out the lights, make sure everything's perfect for me to go to bed. And last night I thought, man, it's, it's got to be a Dr. Pepper. So, and it said zero sugar, but I didn't think about it. It doesn't mean zero caffeine. So... My wife told me that later. She's like, you were up all night last night because you drank that Dr. Pepper. And I said, no, I was up all night last night because you, my little friend, were little chainsaw last night. You were snoring all night long. And don't worry, she gave me permission to share this. And she said, uh, you can share it with the services. And I asked her just a minute ago, I said, did, did I shared it. Are you cool with me sharing it again? She goes, oh, believe me, I've already heard from the first service that you shared it. Uh, but it, it moved on from Little Chainsaw to something far more uh, struggling for me. It moved on to the whale noises. So it was like, it was like this. It was like... And I'm like sitting there thinking like, I've never heard this level of snoring before. And today I'm teaching on the rapture of Jesus Christ, how he rescues the church. And so last night I'm saying, come Lord Jesus, save me, save me tonight. And so he didn't get me, but that's okay. I'm going to teach you about the rapture of Jesus Christ and how he rescues the church. And so I understand for my Catholic friends and my Reformed friends, perhaps the idea of the rapture is completely bogus to you. I worked on an Anglican church staff, and they held to different views of the end times. And, uh, but I'm going to deliver to you a very historical perspective within historical evangelicalism today. Um, first, I want to start with is showing you kind of the framework that I positioned last week in the book of Revelation. It's a book about lots of prophecies to come in the future, written by the Apostle John, whom we've been preaching through the Gospel of, of John, um, and we'll return to that next week. But I want to show you kind of the outline of the book of Revelation as it fits, and then I'm going to walk through um, this great rescue operation of what's called the rapture. And so in, in the book of Revelation, there's kind of four ages in the book. In chapters 1 through 3, it's the church age. That's the age in which I believe in the, Bible, the New Testament teaches that when the Holy Spirit descended upon the believers at Pentecost, they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And every believer since that time, when they receive Jesus Christ, they receive the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And you and I as Christians live today in the church age. We are continuing in, in Acts chapter, let's say 29, like we're continuing in that era, in that age right now where our job, our responsibility is to share and show the love of Jesus Christ. And as believers throughout all of history, we have been awaiting, even in the first, second, third century, the blessed hope, the return of Jesus Christ. And on Easter Sunday, I said, when Jesus was uh, uh, crucified, buried, and raised again, the angel came back and said, hey, he's coming back. Okay, so the church age is to await for this. Chapters 1 through 3 says that. 
Um, we don't know how many years that will take. How long will we be in the church age? Today, we are in the church age. That is the age we are in. You say we are in the technological age. We are in the, the globalization age. Well, in God's playbook, we're in the church age. Um, Revelation chapter 4 through 19 is the tribulation age. We are not in that age. The tribulation, which I outlined last week in Revelation 6, it fits in this time frame. Uh, Revelation chapters 4 all the way to 19 talk about the tribulation. These are the terrible trials to come. I believe the believers, the church, the bride of Christ will be rescued away from that coming great tribulation. Uh, many will say, well, aren't we as believers supposed to face trials and tribulations? Yes. John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will find troubles and trials and tribulations. But Jesus said, but take hold, take heart, I have overcome the world. Every believer goes through trials and tribulations, but I do not think so that we will face the great tribulation mentioned and recorded in Revelation chapters 4 through 19. Revelation chapter 20 is the kingdom age or the millennial kingdom um, which Jesus will return and be the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord's prayer, our Father who helped me out, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Help me out. Boom, that's it. So we're praying, come Lord Jesus, your kingdom come. Well, that kingdom's not gonna come until Jesus returns. And so that's the age we are looking forward to. And then Revelation 21 through 22 is the eternal age. That is the millennial kingdom um, for eternity. So here we go. Revelation chapter six. This is what I taught last week. There's uh, the Jesus Christ opens the first seal like on a scroll. Wax is poured on it and then it's stamped and it's sealed. And it's uh, imagery of Jesus Christ opening up a pronouncement of judgment upon all the world who have rejected Jesus Christ. And terrible things happen. A coming stampede is coming upon our world. It is like in a very apocalyptic end time thing. I believe the church will be rescued from this, but one, we saw a white horse comes riding through into the world, a massive worldwide deception. Uh, this is the rise of the Antichrist. People will be deceived. All those who are not believers will be left behind in the tribulation. That is what we, uh, I read about and taught you last week. Second horse is the red horse. It is global war. This is mass sealer. Never before have we ever been in such an intensity of times where people are racing for nuclear arms in so many different countries. There's a threat of war. Jesus said this, and there will be rumors of wars and wars and nations coming against nations. This is the beginning, I believe, of what we're seeing is the shadows of these horsemen coming to play. But the time is not yet where all this is coming into absolute fulfillment. Revelation chapter... Uh, continuing on uh, the third horse that we saw was the black horse. And it says in the scripture, one-fourth of the earth will be entirely wiped out. Some of my friends say we are in the tribulation, and I would push back to this and say, well, what about all the massive casualties that are happening? The Bible predicts something far more worse than every war ever recorded in all of history, all put together in a seven-year period of time. Um, the black horse will bring incredible global famine, um, and then the pale horse brings the pandemics. And so what are, are we in the tribulation age? 
Some of you would say, absolutely. We have the pandemics. We have the global war. We have deception. Yeah. I would say, no, 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 no. Here's why. Let's look at Revelation. Um, Closing back, I want to just show you, um, first of all, uh, that this is, uh, this is the wrath of God that's coming upon the world. I do not believe theologically that Christians should suffer the wrath of God. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, it says, it's the closing out the chapter from what I preached last week. It says, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains uh, and rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Here's what's happening. God's judgment is the wrath of God. The lamb is Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God. That lamb is Jesus Christ. This is God's wrath pouring out. People are freaking out. They are seeking suicide. God won't let them commit suicide because they are facing the wrath. They're hiding in the rocks. Massive earthquakes are coming. Uh, Meteors are falling to the earth. This This has not happened yet. This is not where we are at. We are not in the tribulation. This is the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 16, again, it says, look at this. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being poured out during the tribulation age. We are not in the tribulation age. Uh, This is the wrath of God. There's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, there's seven bowls. I read to you those four horsemen. That's the first four seals of a seven group. There is so much more judgment. This is unbelievable wrath. Those are my friends that say, no, we're in the tribulation age. They would say, it's maybe the wrath of Satan. Maybe it's the wrath of man. No, this is the wrath of God. This is the wrath of God being poured out during the tribulation age. But I've got good news for you, church. You are not mentioned in the tribulation age according to the book of Revelation. Let's look. Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Uh, the church, ecclesia, everybody say that word with me together, ecclesia. Wow, good for you. That means the gathering, the assembly, the church. It's mentioned 19 times, and that's the church age. It's mentioned 19 times, Revelations 1 through 3, but not one mention in Revelation 4 through 18, which I just showed you is the tribulation age, is the word ecclesia mentioned in the scripture. So when you look at Revelation and you see the massive outpouring of the tribulation, the church is gone. There is no church. Why? Because the church got rescued. Because the bridegroom kept his promise from John chapter 14 when Jesus said, hey, and if I leave, I will come back for you and I will take you to where I am. He will rescue the bride. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a different analogy, but the church is the bride of Christ. Amen? Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. Amen? The bridegroom will come and rescue his church from the tribulation. No mention of the church at all in Revelations 4 through 18. Isn't that amazing? That's good news. Let's celebrate that just for a second. I think there is a lot of good news in this uh, message today. And then you see it mentioned, um, looks like one time in Revelations 20 through 22 in the millennial kingdom. 
And so here's my point in this is um, Revelation chapter 3, okay, back to the church age. Let's look at the passage of Scripture. Revelation chapter 3. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you, fill in the blank. Let's try that again. Because you, Jesus says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from, from the hour. He says, I'm going to keep you from the hour. Is there a difference between from or through? What if he says, and I will keep you through the trial? That's different. That's very different. If he said, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you through the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth, then we could say, okay, so we're in the tribulation. We're in that, we're in that. He's going to keep us through it. But he says he's going to keep us from it. I, I, I'm laying a theological foundation before we get going this morning. Uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 through 10, or chapter 1, 10, the very beginning of Thessalonians, this is the core passage that I'm going to argue about the rapture of Jesus Christ, uh, the rapture of the church. I need to clarify that. The rapture of the church, Jesus Christ is the one uh, coming to for the rescue. First uh, Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, I believe the idea and the doctrine of the rapture that where, where Jesus comes and rescues the church from the tribulation was taught by Jesus, number one, Revelation, or John chapter 14, and then brought into play by the Apostle Paul. And the Thessalonians, though, they were thinking we are in the tribulation because they had seen martyrdom. They had seen pandemics. They had seen plagues. They had seen war to the world around them. All of the events described in the tribulation were happening. And so Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and this is what he says, chapter 1, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this is good news for those that are in Thessalonica. In the first century, there's a promise of encouragement from the Apostle Paul, that comforting news that there is one to deliver us from the wrath to come. Um, those are my friends that say, no, you got to go through the tribulation. I go back to Revelation and say, no, he keeps us from that hour. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, this is where perhaps the argument gets some little ground for those that hold to the idea that we've got to go through it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, the Apostle Paul closes out and says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Some folks would read that verse and go, well, that means that we're not going to hell and face the wrath of Satan. Um, my argument again would be in Revelation, it's about the wrath of God. There is wrath of man, there is wrath of Satan, and there is wrath of God. The worst wrath that you and I should worry about is actually the wrath of God. He is, when you see that movie, what is it, Avengers and Thanos like snaps his finger and boom, the whole world is decimated. God is far more powerful than Thanos. His, his wrath is perfectly measured with holiness and justice. And there is a time coming uh, where God's wrath will be poured out on the world, all those who've rejected Jesus Christ. But here's the gospel good news, and everybody agrees with this. 1 John 4.10 
says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the, help me out with this big word, propitiation for our sins. Major theological groundwork done right here. Jesus Christ absorbs the wrath of God so that we, unbelieving, uh, unrepentant at times, uh, rebellious people can be in perfect fellowship with a holy, mighty, sinless God how does that happen? It happens because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, dying in our place, taking sin upon man, upon him who had no sin, so that we might be rendered righteous in favor with God Almighty. So the Christian, the Christian has no wrath with God. The Christian only finds favor with God, not because of how special you are or I am, but because of how special and unique of what Jesus Christ has done. Amen? My wrath argument is big. This is a big reason why I hold to this position that I'm going to teach you today. So here we go. Um, I want to show you a slide, um, the various views. There's multiple views about the tribulation. Um, one is, is that there's a pre-trib rapture, the one I will teach you, the one I think is most scripturally substantiated. This is the one that's the most biblically rich, theologically consistent, that one, pre-trib. Um, it means that we're going to be raptured, rescued before the tribulation. Then there will be a time where there's chaos, but a global rise of peace where a, a new leader will come to the power, the Antichrist, form a new global government and uh, rule the world and then make peace with Israel and then break it halfway through and then all hell is going to break loose and even worse. Then there's those that hold to a mid-trib, meaning like middle way through, all believers will be rescued, raptured uh, from the tribulation. And then there's those that are post-trib, meaning you've got to go through all seven years of the tribulation. These are where you get the preppers. I don't know. Does anybody got friends that are buying houses up in Prescott and Flagstaff, burying bunkers and building up seven years of supplies? Raise your hand. How many of you are doing that? Good. That means that you don't think it's going to happen. If I held to a post-tribute, I would have a house in Prescott, a bunker, and seven years of supplies. I'm serious. I would if I held to that view. I, I think I'm getting out of here far before it gets the hell on earth. Um, Mid-tribbers will prep, and they'll prep at some level. Pre-trib, they're not prepping a whole lot because they're like, dude, I'm out of here. I'm getting rescued. The bridegroom's coming for the bride. Woo, I'm going home. That's good news. So these are the different views. Some of you would say, well, I disagree with the whole word rapture entirely. Um, the word's not found in the Bible. I would say, amen, brother. Amen, sister. It's not mentioned in the Bible. But is the word Trinity? Is the word Bible mentioned in the Bible? No. But is the Bible the Bible? Yeah, the Bible is the Bible. Is Trinity true? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all fully being God, yet three persons? Yep. Uh, the word rapture is actually the word in Latin, we get the word, uh, it came from the Latin Vulgate. If you were holding a Latin Bible, Latin Vulgate, the word is rapio. And it means to snatch, to seize, to take away. It's mentioned 13 different times in the New Testament. And all throughout the scriptures, is actually pretty popular. Um, there's actually six different raptures in the Bible. Just FYI, Enoch was raptured, Elijah was raptured, Isaiah was raptured, Jesus was raptured, Philip was raptured, Paul was raptured. 
And some people would say, okay, so if the word's not in the Bible, there is some raptures in it, I get it, okay, but it's a new doctrine. There was a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby who taught this along uh, in the 1830s, and I don't buy into new doctrine. Well, maybe you haven't done a historical analysis of the rapture. Because actually the first teaching that we have recorded is actually a thousand years before that by a gentleman named the Ephraim of the, the Syrian. And he taught in uh, 800 AD that Jesus Christ was coming to rescue the church. Uh, and I would argue the teaching actually started with Jesus, John chapter 14, and it was even predicted pr- prior to that, perhaps in the prophets, and then taught by the early apostles. Again, in church history, Brother Delcino, we have on record that in Italy in the 1300s, he taught of the same pre-trib view. Morgan Edwards, the founder of the First Baptist College uh, in the 13 colonies, one of the first colleges in the 13 colonies of our country called Brown University in 1742, taught the pre-trib view. So there's church history in this thing. So I I like church history, but the argument that the doctrine is too new, we can't go with it, that's not a good argument. Um, Others that hold to these views are incredible folks. Let me give you some honorable mentions uh, of those that teach this idea. John MacArthur, famous Bible preacher teacher, did a great job during the pandemic, said we're not closing the church. Jesus didn't tell me to teach everybody about how to be healthy and stay alive. He told me to save them from hell and I'm going to preach the gospel. He never closed the doors, did a great job in Southern California. Another guy did a great job during Southern California is Jack Hibbs. He, they teach the same kind of thing. Um, others uh, that teach this is great late Billy Graham, Charles Ryrie, Charles Swindoll, John Walvard, Mark Hitchcock, David Jeremiah, Jimmy Evans, all the Calvary Chapel folks, if you're into Calvary Chapels, they teach this idea. It started with Chuck Smith, Skip Heitzig, and many, many others. Greg Laurie is a great one too. All to say is, here's where we're at in evangelicalism about this doctrine. Um, Let's look at a slide, and I'll show you some different positions on it. About 71% of all evangelicals actually hold to the idea of a rapture. Um, 36% hold to a pre-trib, meaning you're rescued before the tribulation. So uh, that's the position that I teach, not because it's popular, because I think it's biblically substantiated. Um, And then you have another uh, uh, 4%, not a lot, pretty minor, mid-tribulation. You get rescued through the middle of the tribulation. And then you have a bunch in the uh, post-trib. So those are the two biggest arguments for a rapture, post or uh, uh, pre. And then you have 13%. They're just other views. It's called like pre-wrath and some other ones that are actually, I would say, more substantiated sometimes in the post-tribs. And then you have the not sure and then the not literal. And typically within the not sure and the not literal, those are perhaps mostly reformed folks coming out of covenantal theology, or Catholic folks. And they just don't teach on the end times. And by the way, a survey was done, only about 2% of sermons that you hear in America today have anything to do with prophecy. So the, the reason why, so again, this is why you have a lot of different confusion on it. But where I'm coming from you is that I think it's very sound. I think it's very solid. I would never teach something that I wasn't fully convinced of. Okay? And I teach this because I want you to have hope in any crisis that you face. When you see famine, when you see global wars, have hope, be comforted. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says uh, to the church in Thessalonica, he says, 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may also grieve as others who have no hope. Uh, The Apostle Paul is uh, speaking to Christians. Notice the word brothers. Uh, He is speaking to those that as well, trying to comfort those. Uh, The word asleep or those that have uh, died, uh, another word for asleep in this context is dead. And uh, I think it's a pretty good analogy because when you die today, it's like sleep in a sense. So your body is laid to rest in a cemetery, a place of rest. The Bible says is that there's going to be a resurrection though where your body will literally raise from the grave and that you will have a body uh, in heaven. And so, but the truth is, right, listen to this, When we die, immediately, the Apostle Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the... So the moment that you die, your soul is immediately ushered into heaven. There is no soul sleep here. The soul's not asleep. The body is asleep. And the Thessalonians were a little upset and worried, thinking they got left behind. The tribulation had happened, and they're worried about maybe their friends that died, their Christian buddies that went through some trials and tribulations themselves, but not the great tribulation. They're thinking maybe they're not getting resurrected. And so Paul's writing to clarify to them, bring clarity in their crisis. But notice what that last little phrase, that you may not grieve. He's got good news, as others who others do who have no hope. Uh, the implication of this is you have hope. Christian, you have hope. Don't think like they think. You have hope. Let us, let's continue to read on. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's talking about there will be a resurrection, uh, there will be... Uh, a resurrection that will occur at the time of the rapture. We'll see that in just a moment. But he's saying that the foundation of this doctrine, which I'm going to outline for you a little bit more clear, is based on the gospel. Jesus died and rose again. 1 Corinthians 15 says this is the gospel, that Jesus Christ died, he suffered, and he was buried, and he raised a, help me out, again. So Jesus is alive, and he's coming back. And so even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul's giving assurance and encouragement that their loved ones that have passed away are going to be in heaven. Their bodies will be in heaven. There will be a resurrection. Not only that, but there will be a rapture. Verse 15, continuing on, he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. A couple things on that passage. Uh, Apostle Paul is saying, we declare to you. What he's saying is, we, the apostles, he had already sent Timothy to give reassurance to the Thessalonians, to reassure them, and he's saying, we declare to you by the word from the Lord. In other words, thus saith the Lord. He's giving massive authoritative weight to what he's about to say because there were other writers writing to the church in Thessalonians, disturbing them, distracting them from what was true about end time events. 
these people, the Thessalonians, they were thinking they missed the rapture. They're thinking their loved ones weren't getting resurrected. They're confused. They're thinking they're in the end times because somebody confused them. And Paul's telling them, now that's not the way it is. I'm going to declare to you from the word of the Lord, not from man, that we who are alive, that is anybody who's alive as a Christian in that context, and that means it for us too, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not proceed or go before those who have fallen asleep. So he clarifies exactly what he means right there in this next verse. Let's look at that, verse 16. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So who are the dead in Christ? The dead in Christ, that phrase, listen to me, in Christ never occurred in church history until after Pentecost. The church was not born until the Holy Spirit indwelled all the believers. The church's first birthday is at Pentecost with Jerusalem. Then after the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, there you get the theological framework for Christians are all in Christ. So what does this mean? It means that the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, will descend from where? Let's try that again. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. And then he's coming with a cry of a command with a voice of a, an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet, this is a summoning, a congregational summoning like you get in Exodus chapter 19 when Moses is assembling the nation of Israel at the Mount Sinai in assembling all the believers. This is that kind of sounding, gathering, sound, trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, those are Christians who are believers in Jesus Christ, dead during the time when Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonians. He's saying... Your friends, they're going to rise first. Now, if I was there uh, when uh, we'd be reading this letter, perhaps in front of the church, I'd be sitting there like, why do they got to rise first? Why, aren't, why can't we who are alive rise first? Why do the dead ones get to rise first? Some people have said, well, that's because they're six feet below. They got to get a head start. It doesn't matter. But that's what it is. That's what Paul says. Uh, and that's what it is. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. So their spirit is with the Lord, but the Bible talks about a resurrection, a physical resurrection, that everybody will have a physical body in heaven. And the Jewish people believed in a resurrection. The only one that argued against it would be like the Sadducees. But the Jews absolutely adhered to this resurrection, a physical body, uh, and a resurrection of the dead. Uh, Jesus taught this, his, his apostles uh, taught this, his disciples taught this, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now we get to the classic passage for what's called pre-tribulational theology, the doctrine of the rapture, verse 17. It says, then we who are alive, notice a couple of things, we, who's writing? Paul. Paul is including himself in this. We who are alive, Paul's a Christian. The Thessalonians are Christians, so we who are alive, who are, help me out, left, will be caught up. What is that word caught up? That is where we get our word rapture. 
You say, oh, but one proof text, that's not enough to build a doctrine on. Absolutely agree with that. But the problem is, is that word caught up is not mentioned one times in the New Testament. It's mentioned a number of different times. This is described as a rapture. It's an event which God will rescue believers from the tribulation. Um, the word is literally snatch, take away, to seize. It's mentioned uh, 13 times in the New Testament. 13 different times that word. And the word is harpozo. Uh, harpozo. It's a Greek word and it means literally to take away. Like a very quick taking. Some of you have seen the videos and the movies or your mom and dad did or your aunts and uncles, the Left Behind series, where people, are, they're gone, they're out of there. Uh, this is a rescue operation from God. This is where we translated the Greek word harpozo to the Latin Vulgate, rapio, where we get the word in English, rapture. So, this is what he says, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Who's with them? All believers who are alive during the time of the rapture, when Jesus comes on a cloud, will be caught up with them. Who is them? It's the dead in Christ. It's all those believers from the church age that will be resurrected and raptured simultaneously. That's what Paul is saying. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. When I was a kid, I loved Michael Jordan, and Michael Jordan was always like Air Jordan. This is Air Jesus, okay? This is Air Jesus. Notice this. He never comes back to the ground. This is not the second coming. So now I'm going to ask for the slide on the second coming versus the rapture because all my Catholic friends, all my Reformed friends go, well, you're confusing it. You're making it sound like there's so many comings. I'm like, no, they're different, man. I'm telling you they're different. So this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, notice this is what I'm calling the second coming of Jesus Christ, phase one, the rapture, phase two, the return of Jesus Christ. So first you see 1 Thessalonians, there's movement from earth to heaven. Who's getting raptured? The believers, all the living and all the church age Christians, they're going up. They're being harpozo. They're being seized. They're being snatched. They're being rescued. Who are they meeting? Jesus. Where are they going? In the air with the Lord. This is good. We're being saved from the wrath to come. But you look at the second coming of Jesus Christ, his return, phase two. It's a movement from heaven to earth. Jesus is returning to earth with all the saints. And this is where we get the song, help me sing it. Oh, when the saints... Oh, when the saints go marching in, I want to be part of that number. Oh, when the saints go. Boy, you guys need a little more. Let's celebrate for a second. Come on. Come on. All right. Yeah, so, so the second return of Jesus Christ to phase two, the, the Lord's going to come back with his saints. So movement from earth to heaven versus movement from heaven to earth. There's no signs needed for the rapture. The, this is the idea. I think pre-trib position can only uphold no signs are needed. Jesus could come at any point in time right now. No signs are needed. Still, we have 500 more prophecies to be fulfilled in the Bible. When will those prophecies be fulfilled? They'll be fulfilled all throughout the tribulation age, all throughout uh, the, the ages to come. 
So before the return of Christ and even through the return of Christ, no signs are needed, though, for the rapture to come. Paul thought, and so did all of the believers in the early church, thought the rapture could happen at any point in time. So uh, with the return of Jesus Christ uh, coming back for good, uh, lots of signs are needed. Uh, all throughout the tribulation, there are signs, predictions, all that. Uh, the rapture is a blessing, uh, is described as a blessing and to bring comfort. The return of Christ is destruction. The king is coming back, Revelation says, in a white horse, and on his thigh is a sign, and it says, King of kings and Lord of what? And he's got a sword in his hand, his, his tongue is like a sword to strike down the nations. This is a warring Lord, not a little prince of peace. Um, so it, they're different. Uh, it's a time of destruction in the return of Jesus Christ. The king is coming. He's going to clean everything up. In the rapture, it involves believers. In the return of Christ, it involves Gentile nations. Uh, this will occur with the blink of an eye. Uh, with the return of Jesus Christ, it's very visible. And that's recorded in Matthew 24, Revelation 1-7. And even the angels in the book of Acts, which I preached on at Easter, said, don't, don't worry, he's going to return right here on the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, was prophesied by Zechariah that he would return back on the ground at the Mount of Olives when he comes again. So they are different. Verse 18, this is what Paul closes out and says. He says, therefore, I encourage Encourage one another with these words. So if the Apostle Paul was trying to warn the Thessalonians, like, look, all hell's going to break loose. Tribulation's about to wipe out a fourth of the earth with a black horse, not to mention the seven bowls, the seven uh, seals, not to mention the seven trumpets. There's going to be hell on earth. If he was saying that or teaching that, he wouldn't say this. He was teaching a rescue operation. He was teaching that the bridegroom's coming for the bride and they're going to be okay. How will it happen? The Apostle Paul says this, it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. It says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. Doesn't this sound familiar? Imperishable, that's glorified bodies, eternal bodies, and we shall be changed. We, Apostle Paul said that. We, the living too, the dead in Christ, resurrected, glorified bodies. The living Christians, raptured and resurrected, glorified bodies. We shall be changed. The Greek word here for twinkling of an eye is atomos. It's where we get the idea. It happens in a moment. It's where we get the word atom. It's very small. Uh, it's microscopic, it goes unseen, and this is exactly what's going to happen. The world is described that it will happen in millions and millions of Christians on earth. This event will happen in the future. It could happen at any point in time. Believers will vanish. And so what's the outcome? Matthew 24 says some will be left behind. Here's what it says. Matthew 24, Jesus said, describes this worldwide event by saying, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. What does this mean? This means that the world will be wondering what in the world just happened. 
the New Age movement uh, has a, their own narrative. I read a book uh, just recently. I've been diving in to see what others say about this idea, this next big event on history's calendar. Uh, a woman by the name of Barbara Marciner, she's got a book called The Coming Dawn, The New Age Coming. And in the New Age theology, they believe that Mother Earth is planning, listen to this, Mother Earth is planning a great evacuation of millions and millions of people. And she was told this by spirits. She's a channeler. She's a spirit guide. I believe she actually was told this by spirits. Uh, she is probably interacting with demons. And Satan is the masterful liar. So every story of God that you see in Scripture, there's a counterfeit story of Satan. Uh, Satan is called the father of all what? Lies. So everything we see in the, in the supernatural, you have to understand there is truth and there is false. And so Mother Earth has got a great evacuation plan to purge herself of all the evil. And they call it in their book um, that all those that will be taken away are taken, in a sense, for a little bit of punishment because they were the ones who were hindering the New Age movement. They were the ones that were closed-minded and did not accept Mother Earth's agenda. Uh, this, is, this is, I believe, what is being perpetuated by Satan himself and demons channeling through people that are going to seek uh, spiritual guidance. The true story is that Father God has got a plan. The true story is that Father God is coming for His church. And He's sending the bridegroom to rescue the bride. And you, ladies and gentlemen, who are in Christ are the bride. And the bridegroom is coming again to rescue his bride. And the world, when we are gone, rescued, and in heaven, there's three things that are going to happen. The Bible says there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. We won't anymore just be the bride of Christ. The church will be the wife of Christ. There will be a massive festival in heaven with all the church. The bridegroom is finally rescued and come for the bride. There will be an award ceremony called the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And there will be an incredible time of, of prosperity and peace. Meanwhile, all hell is breaking loose below. We will be getting ready. And we will be ready to come back with Jesus, our, the king, back to earth. It sounds crazy, I know. But here's what the scripture lays out, is that there is that time coming, some will be left behind. And so what I want to encourage you to do, is I want to encourage you to do this, is take heed to the word of God. Jesus said this, John chapter 14, 1 through 3, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Watch this, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Did you know that uh, Jesus Christ is mentioned by the Apostle John that he was a very integral a part of all of creation? When John is mentioning Jesus Christ, the Logos, he says that in him 
uh, he was working to create all things. And then he quotes out of Genesis. Did you know Jesus Christ on earth was a carpenter? Did you know that Jesus is good at building things? He's good at restoration of people, is he not? He restores things. He's an incredible craftsman. He created all things. The Bible says is that you and I are created in what? Christ, Jesus, for good what? Works. Created in Christ Jesus. Okay? So here's the good news, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ has been working on a room for you for 2,000 years. If he built earth in six years and then rested on that last day, imagine what this place is going to be like. All that to say is the bridegroom, and this is true, the bridegroom, this would be true in their culture. When Jesus said this to his disciples, they would have envisioned a bridegroom leaving the betrothed uh, bride-to-be to go away to their father's house to do an add-on addition and then come back a year later and get their bride, retrieve their bride and bring them back to their father's house. And Jesus says later that when he takes of the wine at the last supper, he says, I'm not going to drink of this vine again until we are together in my father's house in the kingdom. The good news for you and me in the rapture is that the bridegroom is coming back and he's coming to rescue his bride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would live it out. Thank you for the promise that you make in Scripture. I do pray that even in our time of communion, might we remember and might it be a reminder of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we are going to be together, that we will, you will come and rescue your bride, not subjecting your bride to beating, Lord, but to blessing. And we thank you that through the person and the work of Jesus Christ as Jesus said in that upper room that, he, that you would come back, Lord, and rescue us. And you've been preparing a place for us. And so we thank you for that. We hold on to that. And in this time of communion, Lord, we receive it and say thank you as well that you have taken our sins upon yourself and you've suffered in our place so that we don't have to suffer. And Lord, you absorbed all the wrath of God on that cross. And so in communion, Lord, we not only look forward to the future of the marriage supper of the Lamb and the rescue of the bridegroom and the bride coming together, but we also acknowledge that you are our forgiveness. You are our hope. You've paid the penalty. All is done. And we receive your grace today. In the mighty name of Jesus, everybody said, Amen. In just a moment, you come forward to receive communion and do it in light of what I've taught about. And it's for believers. It's for the bride of Christ. And realize that Jesus says he's not going to partake of that cup again until we're all together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so in every act of communion, it is almost like a, an awakening to the uh, early church. They would say this word in the Latin phrase, Maranatha, and it means our Lord come. So we need to live with that kind of anticipation and see that things of this world are not as they ought to be, but they're not always as they always will be. Our Lord is good. So come ready, and when you're ready to receive communion. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to support North Valley Church by partnering with us through giving, you can do so by visiting us online at northvalley.org. Thanks, and have a great day.